Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, as Afghan interpreters hide from the Taliban, Western governments start talking to them. I don't think that amounts to recognition or anything like it. The various Western powers recognise that they have some residual responsibility to Afghans. Do we need to rewrite the laws of war? I do wonder now how much someone who is sitting, say, in Arizona, who calls in an airstrike, for example, on a suspected terrorist camp, actually recognises the costs of war. And why are military personnel so much more likely to faint than civilians? It's always been slightly taboo, though, fainting in the military. Previously, you were charged for it. It was considered as though you'd done it on purpose. It's six weeks since the international evacuation from Afghanistan ended, but men who once served alongside British forces remain stranded, fearful both for their own safety and that of their families. Among them, this man injured has he jumped from a third floor window to escape the Taliban. I am extremely worried about myself and my wife and children's. Every two days I change my location. The Taliban are constantly coming to my house. I don't know how to leave the country. I am kindly requesting the British government to help me, please, as soon as possible. This former interpreter is still waiting for his application to be processed. It was last week that the Taliban came again to our home. I think it was last week, yeah. They talk, my big brother with themselves, to the district four. My brothers told them that we don't know where he is since uh, Taliban took over. Carolyn Webster is a counsellor who's been talking to former interpreters. She says many have had no response to their appeals for help. Anything just to say, we are looking at your application because at the moment they're sending it off into the ether. Nothing's coming back. They don't know if it's been accepted. People are, are, are just clinging on to life. Our interpreters, people who walked alongside our servicemen and servicewomen saved their lives in some case. Hundreds accepted under the Arab scheme for resettlement are known to have been left behind. The MOD says its commitment to them is not time-limited and will endure. But as former interpreters for Western forces hide from the Taliban, leaders of those Western countries are holding talks with the group. Last week, British diplomats met Taliban representatives and this week the US did the same. Meanwhile, G20 leaders have agreed to work with the group to get humanitarian aid flowing into Afghanistan again. Kate Clark is the co-director of the Afghanistan Analysts Network. She told me promises of aid are a long way from formal recognition of the Taliban's authority. I don't think that amounts to recognition or anything like it. Uh, and I would imagine that would be a long way down the line. The various Western powers recognise that they have some residual responsibility to Afghans, to poor Afghans, um, particularly when there's a economic crisis or a humanitarian crisis already overwhelming the country. The World Food Programme, for example, has said that it, its estimation is that just one in 20 households have enough to eat every day. The Taliban takeover of Kabul immediately meant that huge amounts of, of money that were coming into the country were cut off. You can't just switch sanctions on and off because a, a, a group that's suspected of terror, you know, supporting international terrorism comes into power. So that, that's the major problem that the Taliban are facing. And were you surprised to see US and British officials meeting with Taliban just two months after the fall of Kabul? 
I think it's very interesting. The Western governors, governments often care more about poor Afghans than the leaders in Kabul do. And I think this is the case now. I don't think the Taliban have shown much interest in, in governance or governing Afghanistan. They're a, a, a military grouping that were absolutely dead set on military victory. They had very few plans in terms of economics or political. They've um, established a very, very narrow government that is the opposite of, a, of the sort of representative government that would make it easier for Western donors to deal with. Things like not opening secondary schools for girls makes it very, very difficult for the Western governments to work with the, with the Taliban. But they've stuck to this very hardline policy. But governments like, like our government in Britain or the European governments, America, they still remain concerned about Afghans going into poverty. And I think for the European powers, many of them are also frankly worried about refugees, which they see as a problem. And what can the West gain by holding out on formal recognition at this stage? I don't think it's holding out. If a group has taken power by force, which is the case in Afghanistan, it would it would not automatically be recognised by other countries. And no countries rushed to recognise the Taliban government. So it's, it's partly the way that power was captured. And it's partly the fact that the, you know, it's, a, it's an unpleasant government in the eyes of the West. In Britain's case, we automatically, uh, UN sanctions go into British law. So unless things change at the Security Council, that we, we we inevitably have sanctions against particular Taliban individuals who are now in government. And the Taliban has made it very clear it's not happy about the idea of aid being funnelled through independent groups, presumably because the Afghan economy is in enormous trouble. Yes, there's a great sense of entitlement by the Taliban. They've taken over the country and expected everything to carry on as normal. I don't think they quite realise that they were in some senses killing the golden goose or the, the killing the goose that laid the golden eggs when they took over the state because all that money that was automatically coming into Afghanistan, so that's humanitarian aid, development aid, and indeed the money that was being spent by the, the Western armies in Afghanistan, all that was suddenly cut off and we've been left pretty well with just humanitarian aid. So I mean, the economy took a huge, huge hit. And actually, whatever the Western governments do in terms of aid, it is a drop in the ocean compared to what the Afghan state was getting before the 15th of August when the Taliban captured Kabul. Of course, um, Western attention will inevitably move on from Afghanistan. How concerned are you for ordinary people in the country once Britain, the US and others stop paying attention? Oh, it's hor it's already horrendous. It's already horrendous. If you think of someone like Kabul... You know, a huge proportion of the population was either receiving a wage through the government or from an NGO or the UN, or it was providing services, shops, restaurants, barbers, hairdressers, you name it. All that, all that money's gone from the city. People have been selling their household goods just to make, a, you know, a few pence to survive, to buy bread. Afghanistan's had one of the worst droughts in recent memories this year. So, I mean, for, for example, you know, one province in the middle of the country, Bamiyan, people may remember the two giant colossal statues of the Buddha that the Taliban blew up last time. It's uh, the most famous province in Afghanistan for growing potatoes. It's got half of its normal harvest this year. It's a catastrophe already. Kate Clark from the Afghanistan Analysts Network. Well, joining me today is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Michael, Kate said it's a catastrophe already in Afghanistan, not least for those interpreters we heard from a little earlier. Yes, they're trying to hold together their 
prospects of survival against a country which is just going into freefall. I mean, as Kate said, the economy is just collapsing because 75% of all government expenditure was foreign aid money previously. So nothing is happening. And although when we see pictures of, of Afghanistan on the news, you see people in Kabul going up and down on their scooters and going to markets, that looks relatively normal. But beneath that, nothing is happening. The whole, the deeper economy has stopped. And the longer it stops, the worse it gets. And the Taliban, again, as Kate said, have got no idea how to govern. I mean, this is a country of 40 million people. It's not a small country. It's a big country, potentially rich. But the Taliban haven't the first idea how to run a government or to administer it. And there have been promises of humanitarian aid for Afghanistan, but an insistence that this isn't a formal recognition of the Taliban's rule. But is that just a matter of time? Uh, well, if the Taliban hang on long enough, then I think it will be. I mean, what the West are looking for are, are levers uh, against the way that uh, the Taliban treat Afghan civilians. And those levers are aid and sanctions, the possibility of lifting sanctions and recognition. Um, but it will be difficult because um, they're trying to run it through, in a sense, the UN. And at the UN, um, Russia and China are pushing for the recognition of Afghanistan. So assuming that, that the Taliban, as it were, stay in control for a couple of years, ultimately they will be recognised. But um, the West are trying to hold that back as a bargaining chip against the way they uh, conduct themselves. Stay with us, Michael. This is Zitrap. Now, for many, Muqtada al-Sadr is best remembered as the head of a militia that repeatedly clashed with US forces in Iraq, once labelled the country's most dangerous man. But now he's a key political power broker in the country. His bloc was the big winner in Iraq's parliamentary elections held at the weekend, a result that suggests Iran's efforts to influence its neighbour may be less successful in future. Fawaz Jajaz is a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He told me Al-Sadr's success could be welcomed in Washington. The Americans are very delighted that he has done very well uh, in the latest round of elections. I think if you ask me what does Muqtada al-Sadr want, I think he wants to keep a distance from both the United States and Iran. And his strategy and his philosophy is to basically achieve as much independence as possible. I think his strategy will not change. You're going to see... Muqtada Sadr trying to walk a fine line between the Americans and the Iranians, which he has been doing for the past, you know, uh, six or seven years. You say that the Americans will be pleased by his success. Why is that? Is that because of his position on Iran? Yes. He does not care very much for uh, too much Iranian influence in Iraq. It's well known that Muqtada Sadr has developed close ties with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which are very close U.S. allies. It's well known that Iran does not care for Muqtada Sadr. From the American point of view, Muqtada Sadr is the least bad uh, actors in Iraq, and that's why the Americans welcomed the results of the elections, because it means that Iraq now will maintain the same course of action vis-à-vis Iran. There have been claims the election was fraudulent and threats of violence as rivals try to form a new government, though. If you expect any transformative change in Iraq, you are dreaming. The results of the elections will not bring about change in Iraq. The same uh, faces, the same names, and that's why a majority of young Iraqis did not really vote. 
turnout was 41%. And among young people, the turnout was probably in the 20s. Young Iraqis, they don't believe that the elections will bring about any real change in the country. In that light, then, have voters lost faith? Oh, absolutely. I think what you have now is a dysfunctional and broken uh, system in Iraq. And the elections would not have taken place if it had not been for the protests in 2019 by millions of Iraqis. The major loser in the election is Iran. Iran is, has lost a great deal of credibility, not only among the Sunnis, it has no credibility among Sunni Iraqis, but among Shiite Iraqis. Remember, Iran is a Shiite-dominated country. So even though we're not going to see a major transformative change in Iraq, I think Iran now has lost a great deal of political power in Iraq, in particular among the Shiite community. The reality is Iraq is a dysfunctioning, is a broken, has a broken political system. And whoever does end up in charge in Iraq, there are a long list of problems to deal with. The greatest problem uh, in Iraq is corruption, corruption, corruption. Corruption has basically bled the country into almost really destruction. Unemployment among young men and women is probably in the 30s. Uh, poverty is in between 30% of Iraqis are very poor. Um, it, it, it's sectarian. It, the whole country is based on sectarian division. That the system itself does not function. Without substantive reforms, without substantive change, I think Iraq uh, continues to be on the brink of political and economic collapse. And that's why the results of the elections will not produce any major change because I don't think the current political uh, an economic elite appreciate the gravity of the economic and social crisis in the country. Fawaz Jarja speaking to me earlier. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, Fawaz Jarja has called Iraq a dysfunctional and broken country, riven by corruption and on the brink of collapse. Do you think that's a possibility? And if so, what would the consequences be? Countries like Iraq, they, they can collapse and yet they still somehow keep on going. You know, It's a failed state. Iraq has been a failed state effectively since uh, 2014, 2015. Um, and it can carry on being a failed state, which is to say that people go about their daily lives as best they can, but that nobody believes in the institutions anymore. They just they just work within their own communities. And that is, I think, what we're looking at. And interestingly, I mean, Moqtada al-Sada, I mean, he was the leader of the, the Mahdi army. And if the Americans, and particularly the British, could have got hold of him several years ago, they would have been delighted to imprison him for a very long time. And now the Americans need him because, as um, Farah says, he is the best possibility for, as it were, managing, somehow continuing to keep this failed state out of the, the orbit of Iran. So I think that will continue. And what we're seeing from the West's point of view here, I think, is a is a slower version of the Afghanistan scenario. The Americans will leave Iraq uh, sometime in the next uh, year, I'm pretty sure. And, and uh, you know, Western influence will just, as it were, withdraw and leave behind a failed state in the hands of governments that really can't represent their people very well. Now, is war an essential part of being human? While it's usually seen as something to avoid, are we failing to learn lessons from past conflicts that could prevent more violence in the future? These are some of the questions being tackled by Margaret Macmillan, a professor of history whose latest book explores how conflicts shape society. She spoke to me earlier from Toronto and told me war has been a part of every society. 
I do think war is something to be avoided at all costs, but I think we have to accept the fact that it's been very much a part of human history. As far back as we know, the evidence seems to be that once we began organizing ourselves in groups, particularly once we settled down and became agriculturalists, we also started to fight each other. And you talk about war spurring invention, economic activity, national unity. It almost starts to sound like a positive thing. Yes, and I don't want it to sound like it's a positive thing, but we have to accept again, just as we have to accept the reality of war in human history, that war has sometimes produced beneficial effects. We wouldn't choose to do it in that way, I don't think, but it cannot be denied that war has spurred advances in technology and science, advances in medicine, a lot of the things that we benefit from today. For example, plastic surgery, dealing with infections on the battlefield, even the whole notion of triage. That comes from war. A number of the changes in societies, which I think we mostly would regard as beneficial, greater participation by women and the working classes in many societies, again, were pushed ahead by war because of their contributions in war. And so I think what we're thinking about with war is something very complicated. It's something that's there. It's something we have to think about. And we have to realize that in some ways it's affected us as societies deeply and sometimes for the better. And in the research that you've done, are there basic causes you've found that lie at the root of most wars? I tend to boil them down to three. And of course, you can quibble about what, which is what. But I think part of it's fear. We fight because we're afraid of what someone might want to take from us or do to us. I think peoples also fight out of greed. They want something. They want land. They want loot. They want. Sometimes they want to take civilians as, as slaves, capture them. And I think we also fight out of ideology, out of belief. And I would conclude in that everything from religious belief to political beliefs. And often, of course, the categories overlap. I mean, the crusaders who went off to the Middle East and the Crusades were doing it, they thought, for a religious purpose. But they also did very well out of it, many of them. And you argue that the study of war has fallen out of fashion. Why is that? And why is that potentially a bad thing? The study of war has fallen out of fashion, I think, in countries that have not experienced war lately, I mean, the, a lot of the West, however you define the West, has enjoyed what people call a long period of peace since 1945. Not that Western countries haven't fought wars, but those wars have been very far from their own shores and their own societies have not really felt the impacts all that much of those wars, unlike, say, the Second World War, or the First World War. And I think there's grown up as a feeling, perhaps, that war is something that is distasteful or if it happens, it happens somewhere else to other sorts of people. That doesn't happen to us anymore. And I think in universities, there's been a sense that we don't really want to study this subject. Um, it's not a legitimate subject of study. And I just think that's a shame because I think we need to understand war if we're going to have any hope of stopping it in the future. And I think we need to study it realistically. I mean, I don't like the sort of idea that we have to study war as a whole series of glorious episodes. Um, I don't think that's the way to study it. I think we need to look at it in the round, at its, at its, its, all its ramifications and aspects. And nation states have largely followed the laws of war as set out in the Geneva Convention. But will that hold, do you think, in an era of non-nation state actors and grey zone threats? The trouble with the conventions on war is, is that they are, you know, they are, they are observed or they have been observed. But the pressure always in a war situation is to break them. And I think we should recognize that in the past, nation states have signed up to certain conventions and they have turned around and broken them. Germany in, in, in the Second World War, the Soviet Union, 
And I think even the Allies, the Western Allies at times, did not fully observe the Geneva Conventions. When you're in a war situation, the pressure to slightly bend the rules or more than do that, break the rules, is strong. And I think we've seen that happening with the sort of wars that have been fought today by a number of countries. The war on terror, I think, led to a loosening of what was permissible. And I think, unfortunately, the United States managed, in, with, for example, Guantanamo, breached the rules of law. Um, it's arguable, and people are arguing it, that drone warfare um, targeting civilians often you know, is, is breaching the laws of war. We have to be careful about doing that because if we bend or breach the laws of wars, other gonna, others are going to do it as well. And as technology develops, will it become harder to even know for certain when you're at war? Will the line between war and peace become blurred, do you think? I think it is blurred. You know, I think it has become blurred. And, and I think the danger also with advances in technology is that it's going to be possible, at least for some countries, to fight a war in which they rely heavily on technology and become more and more distant from the impact on that war. You know, I, I do wonder now how much someone who is sitting, say, in Arizona, who calls in an airstrike, for example, on a suspected terrorist camp or uses a drone to kill a suspect, a suspected terrorist, how much that person actually recognizes the costs of war and what war can actually mean. I mean, there's a dangerous possibility of detachment from the consequences of war, but it's the same sort of thing we faced in the Second World War with bombers, with mass bombing from a great distance. How much did those who were ordering that and, and, and who were carrying it out actually understand what the war meant to those who were on the ground? It is something that we we need to think about. Margaret Macmillan and her book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, has just been published in paperback. Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, do you think we need to review those rules of engagement, given how much the nature of conflict is changing and is going to change in the years ahead? Yes, there's quite a lot of of thought going on at the moment about the, the laws of war. Here we are now, as she describes, in this sort of more hybrid conflict, grey area conflicts, where the rules break down. As soon as you declare that we've got a war on terror, as the Americans did after 2001, then it's very easy then to start relaxing the rules and saying, look, we're in a war against these terrorists, so we will torture people. We will render them to countries that will torture them, whereas we we claim we don't, but we send them somewhere where they will. We will put them in Guantanamo Bay without charge and leave them there for years because we're in a war. This word war allows countries to get away with lots and lots of illegality, which in peacetime would be regarded as unacceptable. And so where we are now is we know that we live in a situation where war isn't quite the issue now. It's it's about endemic conflict. We live in an era of endemic conflict. And we have somehow to manage the ways in which we think about and create regulations for endemic conflict. It's part of the human condition, but it's also part of the, uh, the nature of international relations. It's a big, big area. Now, there are all kinds of unique elements to service life, among them bizarrely a heightened risk of fainting. It's more than twice as common among military personnel as the civilian population. It's happened for centuries and the British forces seem unusually susceptible to it. In the first ever study into fainting in the UK military, cardiologist Major Ian Parsons is trying to get to the bottom of the problem, as Hannah King explains. I think it was the 2017 Trooping of the Colour. It was a very hot day over 30 degrees and a very significant proportion of the parade fainted at some point during it. Of course, you know, the old tropes came out like 
the men aren't hydrated enough, they're not wiggling their toes enough, or they've been gone out drinking the night before, that's why. These are just old wives' tales. There are some who are definitely at risk, and it's not to do with them being weak or them not caring. You can't effort your way out of this. It's just something that happens. To solve that problem, in a heat chamber in a university in Yorkshire, a civvy is being tortured in the name of military science. Science that's searching for a solution to an age-old problem, fainting on parade. It's a soldier, sailor or airman's worst nightmare. It's quite misunderstood, I think, fainting, by doctors as well as by the general public. It's always been slightly taboo though, hasn't it, I think, fainting in the military. Previously you were charged for it. It was considered as though you'd done it on purpose. It was quite common during the vigils on tour on Afghanistan. You know, you're, you're trying to give people who have died a send-off and you're lying face down on the tarmac. I mean, that's just not great, is it? Let's talk about fainting. There is no scientific evidence that either eating breakfast, sucking boiled sweets, wiggling your toes or hydrating more will stop you fainting on parade. Some research does suggest that increasing salt might help, but too much salt is bad. Drinking lots of water just before the parade, but then you're just going to want a wee. Tensing and releasing your bum, you could definitely give that one a go. But cardiology doctor Major Ian Parsons has another idea. You're our first participant in this study. Yeah, I've been told. Triathlete Whitney has come to Leeds Beckett University for the first stage of Major Parsons' experiment. She's dressed in a rather fetching rubber skirt and strapped to Major Parsons' tilt table. By rotating her 60 degrees and sucking the air from around her legs, they can simulate standing on parade for ages without having to actually do it. Oh, do you need a wee? No. Oh, now I've said that, you probably do, don't you? No, yeah. no, I'll be fine. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? You won't make me wee, will it? No. Oh, no, that's fine. To the chamber. Fainting among service personnel is almost two and a half times more common than in civilians of similar age and sex. It's more common in the British military than in the US and more common in women than men. Crucially, it's also more common in high temperatures, so Major Parsons wonders whether identifying those at risk and acclimatising them before parades, whether at home or abroad, could stop them from fainting. First, though, they need to establish how long it would normally take Whitney to faint. OK, well done. That's the end of the test. Very good. They take her right to the edge, but they don't want her to black out entirely. How'd that feel? Weird. <laughs> Dr Parsons will now put half his participants through an acclimatisation programme, exercising or sitting in a bath at high temperatures, and half through a similar programme in normal temperatures in order to compare. If this shows a real demonstrable effect, and if we can identify people who are at risk then it's quite possible to acclimate small numbers of individuals. What this research is essentially for is to better inform commanders so that they can best look after their men and women based on scientific evidence. 2.8. The study's not yet complete, but the initial results are in. Everyone improved in how long they could stand without fainting, suggesting just exercising makes a difference. But those who underwent heat acclimation improved twice as much as those who did not. 
Perhaps this could put an end to the nightmare of fainting in the forces. Hannah King with that report. And before we go, the MOD says space is going to be fundamental to military operations in the future and the UK wants to be a big player in this new domain. But someone has beaten them to it. Captain James T. Kirk, a.k.a. 90-year-old actor William Shatner, actually did boldly go into space, albeit just for a couple of minutes. Professor Michael Clark, would you like to be following in his footsteps? Oh, certainly would. Certainly if I could do it at his age. I mean, let's face it, this is the one mission in which Captain Kirk actually succeeded because Star Trek is it's a catalogue of failure. Look, we all know that we all know the requirement, right? The mission was to boldly go where no one had been before. And when he arrived, week after week, somebody was already there. So Star Trek seems to me represented years of mission failure. So, I mean, Captain Kirk, on this one, he succeeded. I was a bit worried for him as he came down the steps, but good on him. Good on him. No wonder he looked happy. And that's it for this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at BFBS.com slash SITREP, you can catch up with past episodes and sign up to our podcast. But we'll leave you for today with William Shatner's reaction to crossing the final frontier. Captain James Tiberius Kirk is boarding our Blue Origin spaceship. Two, one. It was so moving. This experience has been something unbelievable. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. Everybody in the world needs to do this. Uh, I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. So, I was thinking, Alex, we should do a podcast. How about cooking? Too overdone. Ghosts. Too scary. Education. Oh, too learny. Love Island. Too... Just two. What we need, Al, is a complete life changer of a podcast. Relatable, current, engaging, forward-thinking and very, very sexy. How about old military aircraft? Why didn't you say? Whatever you do, don't work on an aircraft that doesn't have a toilet. I, I don't think you ever got over that feeling. You couldn't see what was happening, but you knew you were very close to the ground and you were trusting a piece of engineering to keep you safe and alive. Join us each week for Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession where we will be full on geeking out with the people who flew them, fixed them, loved them and even hated them. We're not just Av Geeks, we're Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession.